something. They're like, what is that? And I'm like, it's my meat freezer. I know I was threatened with being shot a couple times. And one gentleman I was with refused to go in the slammer one time. I don't want to just survive. I want to thrive. So hello, everyone, and welcome to the second episode of Common Sense. Today, I am interviewing intrepid adventurer and survival expert, Bowtide Survivalist. Thank you so much for coming on. How are you doing? Hey, good evening, uh, commenter. Yeah, thanks for thanks for having me. That's quite an introduction. Awesome. So we're super happy to have you. We being commoner Industries employee of one. So I think we'll start with just telling us a bit about your background. How did you become interested and focused on preparation and survival? Sure. So I think it started with, uh, I was really fortunate. I grew up in a really rural area with lots of woods and mountains. Started with just roaming around the woods, essentially exploring around the house. And my parents were very laid back about uh, about me just kind of roaming around the woods. So I would, you know, see how far I had. I had wilderness that was behind my house that went for miles and miles. Um, and I would just go roam around for, for a long time and uh, try to see how far I could go. I think I started when I was probably seven or eight, seeing what was around. And I just uh, wanted to push the limits of what I could could find out in the woods, I guess. And that that grew and grew until I was, a, you know, in my early teens. And I was soon I was like walking, you know, six or seven miles to go through the woods to go climb mountains uh, that were didn't have any trails or anything behind the house. So that's that's where it began. I think there was also always took an interest in uh, adventure stories. Uh, I think uh, Hatchet, if you're familiar with that book by uh, Paulson, I think I think a lot of people with my interest would point to that book as, as something that, uh, that inspired them, them a lot. Absolutely. So you're saying how you backyard was just so open growing up and you were able to explore. I'm from an area where that was never the case. So I don't know, could you describe what it was like as a kid to be able to just explore and be so free? Like when I was growing up, we were concerned about getting kidnapped. We were concerned about not being on your own property because your neighbors were kind of weird. Like there was no concern about that whatsoever. Um, yeah, I mean, I I definitely there's a couple times I've I when I was a kid, I wandered across the wrong person's property because there was there were other people around and occasionally you know pieces of property were pretty big and uh so occasionally you'd accidentally wander across someone's property and i know i was threatened with being shot a couple times when i was a kid you know like like don't do this again or you're gonna get shot uh sort of thing (laughs) but uh but yeah i mean i'm mostly just cantankerous old guys um it was uh you know, I don't want want to take anything into the nostalgic direction because I think nostalgia is a really dangerous, dangerous sort of sentiment. It can be at least, but uh, yeah, it, it feels like a different time. Like, uh, well, I'm in the in my uh, mid 30s, so you know, the 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 late 90s, early 2000s is kind of when I came of age. So uh, it, it feels like a different time. And uh, yeah, looking back at some of the things I did, like like I mentioned, wandering around, you know, riding my bike around on country roads and stuff, it's kind of weird to look back on it because it would just scare me so bad to let my children do that. But yeah, I think that's 
that's natural. And I mean, I'm trying to, as far as my kids go, I'm trying not to be safety dad. I'm trying to, to let them do their own thing as much as I responsibly can. So. Yeah, there's definitely a balance there because you want them to be able to explore and be adventurous, but safety is, of course, the number one priority. So let's keep going down this adventurous rabbit hole. So you were, you know, 16 or 17 and you started going for longer hikes on your own, going rock climbing on your own. When did you go on your first great adventure? I think the the uh, a, a big turning point for me was when I was a teenager. I started uh, working and volunteering at a mountaineering school, a hmm. uh, mountaineering guiding company that was uh, nearby. I spent a lot of time up there with uh, you know, the mountaineering guides and uh, maintaining maintaining equipment and you know doing yard work, you know helping put away after expeditions and and such. And so I, I eventually when I did, did some mountaineering courses. And then, uh, when I was a teenager, uh, I climbed a uh, Denali. So I think that would be, wow. be the very, I guess, uh, something people would be familiar with. So I think that was a pretty, pretty major adventure. And so that was, that was when I was in my late teens when I, when I did that. Can you describe what going up Mount Denali was like? Yeah. So Denali, it's, uh, over 20,000 feet high. Uh, 20,320 to be exact. And uh, you can climb it from from the base with no uh, airplanes at all. You can can do that. That's rarely done nowadays. Uh, most people fly into the glacier, into the Kehiltna Glacier. Wow. Or, excuse me, the, the Ruth Glacier. They, they use uh, small ski planes to fly into 8,000 feet um to the glacier and so that's that's where the the base camp is it's a very much a game of logistics you bring uh you know you have a lot of gear i believe it's you know you start out with a 70 pound pack and a 40 pound sled so that's where you're starting out at they say with denali and a lot of these other large mountains you don't uh you don't climb them you camp your way up them Hmm. So it's, it's because of the altitude, you physically can't climb, physiologically cannot climb past the altitude. So you have to acclimatize as you go up. So really from base camp to uh, the summit of Denali, it's only, only 20 miles um, in, in actual distance for the route. But the altitude makes it significantly, significantly harder than just uh, merely climbing 12,000 feet in 20, 20 miles. Um, you have all your, all your food, which is, you have three weeks of food and it's, it's generally not freeze dried food. You wouldn't really want to eat freeze dried food if you couldn't help it for three weeks. It's pretty, pretty heavy. Yeah. It's pretty heavy food. A lot of what we ate was similar to what you get at the grocery store. And, uh, but anyways, three weeks of food, plus all of your rope, all of your climbing equipment, plus, you know, four season tents, which are twice as heavy as a a uh, three season tent that you normally use um, for for camping at lower elevation. So you have all this all this heavy equipment, and and what you're doing is you're kind of bounding up the mountain. So you'll go go to your the first two or three days. I thought were some of the hardest because you're heaviest uh, heaviest loaded. After that, you're like going up the mountain, caching stuff like food and other things that you don't need right away. You're caching it. 
and then going back down the mountain to camp. And then the next day you'll go up a little farther, come down. This is an acclimatization process to red blood cells in your body. And, uh, and then, and then you'll, then eventually you'll move up to the next camp after two or three days, you'll move up another camp and you'll repeat the process. You'll just kind of cash, keep making caches up ahead of yourself to, uh, you know, uh, make sure you don't have to ca- carry too heavy of a load and also to uh, make sure that you have uh, acclimatized properly. Where people really, really have a miserable time on those mountains is when it, they get stormed out or there's storms that can last two or three days or more. In, in the worst case scenarios, a blizzard outside, you have to go outside and you have to build walls around your tent out of snow blocks. So you actually oh my bring- gosh. Yeah, you have to bring these, uh, they act, there's actually snow saws. So you bring, you pack down an area of snow and then you use your snow saw to quarry these blocks, kind of like you would for an igloo. And you build these big snow fort. They kind of look like a kid's snow fort around your tent because the blizzards, the storms are so intense that your tent will get shredded without that extra protection. So you have to build all those walls. And if it's storming out, the storms are so so powerful they'll blow those uh walls right over after a time so you have to go repair your walls during storms and i didn't have to deal with any of that usually they people put aside three weeks to climb the mountain just to account for weather days and my group was able to do it in uh two weeks because um you know we were lucky there was no storms or anything like that so so yeah i mean there's there's a lot of less fortunate people who go up there and, and never get their chance to go to the top of the mountain because it's uh, the storms are so bad. Another big challenge there, I, I did the West Buttress route, which is the the most uh, most popular route. It doesn't require any like vertical ice climbing or anything, um, but the altitude is significant uh, uh, problem. If you've if you've ever been to uh, oh like Lake Tahoe or or, or um, anywhere in Colorado that's up, mm-hmm. up uh, at elevation, you kind of that really thin air. It's, it's like that farther up you go, except for twice as bad. So you're walking, basically you walk three steps and then you catch your breath. You do another three steps and you catch your breath. And so it's, it's that thin air and, and up, up in Alaska, it's actually um, the, the air is thinner at, uh, uh, towards towards the poles of the earth so um, Denali's elevation is is like equal to about 2,000 feet higher as far as air density uh, versus like the Colorado so it's it's 20,000 feet in, in Alaska is like 22,000 feet in somewhere else like uh, South America Aconcagua so you pack the snow saw in your backpack just knowing you might need it Oh, you'll definitely need it. You always build, you always build those. Every time you make camp, you build, build your walls around your, uh, around your tent, because by the time a storm kicks up, which can be pretty suddenly, there won't be time to build it. So uh, if you're lucky, there's quite a few people in the mountain. So if you're lucky, um, there'll, you'll be able to move into a campsite that already has some, some kind of infrastructure going. So, but yeah, you have a, a snow saw. It's uh, they have really big teeth on them. They're they're they look a, a little different than like this a saw for wood or something. But yeah, you have you have to have everything you might need along with you, 
did you need to do some sort of like training? Was there a set training process before you did that? Because you've got hundreds of pounds of equipment and this is a two, three week process and you're being extremely intense physical activity all day long. Then you have to saw your fortress together to go to sleep at night. Like, do they have a process that you go through? Um, You know, at the time I kind of grew up with a backpack on my back and I did packed things around all the time. It, it, uh, there was definitely times when it wasn't fun to carry that much weight, but I was able to do it. And, uh, there's really, there really wasn't a, um, a process for it as far as the, the fitness. And, uh, it's, it's kind of interesting with climbing those mountains because the, you know, the fitness component will make you more comfortable for sure. But you know, uh, there's a lot of people who aren't in, I would say the best shape, you know, that have climbed these mountains. You know, if you're, if you're in moderately good shape, you can do it. It's more just a a mindset thing. Like if you want to do it, you can, you can do it. It sounds pretty impressive to me. I don't know as a noob, if I should be allowed to try to climb Mount Denali, just when the mood strikes. (laughs) Before, I think definitely in these, and so the, the, the company that I worked for and that I went on that trip with, you know, they were pretty strict on making sure people had the crevasse rescue component down. So there's, uh, you cross a lot of glaciers. Um, you know, the first part of the route is entirely on glaciers. And so there's places where the snow bridges are weak and people punch through into the crevasses. And so you need to know how to rescue people from, because you're on a rope team the whole time. You're, mm-hmm. you're roped together in teams of three to four people. And if someone punches through and you have to, you need to be trained on that. And so definitely there's some tech, a lot of technical training that uh, should happen before. And I think, I think there's definitely some other companies out there on Denali and also worldwide that don't always do a great job with making sure all their people are competent before they go up, at least not the clients, you know, hopefully the guides are at least, but, um, you know, if, if someone, if there's a problem, like someone's hanging on a rope into a crevasse, everyone should be, should be uh, ready to go. So what do you think keeps drawing you back to doing these types of expeditions? Is it the nature or is it really pushing yourself and seeing how far you can really go? Is it the adrenaline rush? Like what part of it do you think is really exciting to you? Yeah, I mean, I, I really enjoy being outside. I love the mountains, love, you know, love nature, like like you said. And it's uh, by by personality, it's something I, I enjoy. You know, uh, the, the world is a lot more personality driven than, than we think. It's just just what I enjoy doing. Since then, you know, I haven't done any, any, I've done a lot of very difficult sort of outdoor adventures. I think that's the most recognizable one to most people. Yeah, it's definitely extremely impressive. The craziest expedition I've ever been on, I was in a group and we went camping for around six or seven days. And I had to carry my food on my back, carry the tent, uh, portage the canoe. That was a fun one um, because I was with a group of people who weren't super outdoorsy um and so some of the girls couldn't portage the canoe so I was always the girl portaging the canoe but um (laughs) at first it was a little too many bugs I had a problem with 
especially bug hour when you're trying to eat your food and you can't see in front of your face because there's just a horde of mosquitoes around you. But I think as I was there more and more days, I grew to appreciate and love it a lot more. And then I was almost sad that the expedition was over. You know, I think everyone should take something like that to do something that is so not necessarily difficult, but you are really there. You can't leave. All your stuff is with you and you have to just get through it. I think that is an awesome experience, especially for younger people. I did it when I was in my late teen years, too. Oh, awesome. Yeah, that's that's super important. Yeah, I think people benefit a lot from that, even if, you know, maybe especially if outdoors aren't really their interest, just to give you some perspective on life and also to to teach you some skills like, um, you know, as as you may have realized, like just just staying dry is a full-time job almost out, out in places like that. Yeah. And I remember the, so we had two pairs of socks. You had your wet socks and you had your dry socks, because if you're in the canoe, you have your wet socks on. And the best feeling in the world was going to bed with the dry socks on. And the absolute grossest feeling was putting wet socks on in the morning when you're already cold. I I just remember that distinctly. Um, Another thing that was funny about that trip was it was a leave no trace area if you're familiar Mm -hmm. of course yeah Yeah. so it's a leave no trace area so they taught us all the rules how you can't pee in the water of course because that causes uh, a disruption in the environment so you have to pee on land but also you have to go number two not even on land but in a very specific container, which we were told was called the slammer at every campsite, (laughs) there was the slammer. And that is where you went number two. And one gentleman I was with refused to go in the slammer one time. He just, he couldn't do it. And so he went somewhere else and he came back and you had to get your hands sanitized by someone else when he came back. And they knew he came from the wrong side of the the mountain. They're like, that's not where the slammer was. And they went and they found the consequences of his actions and made him bury it, I think. It was something. <laughs> that's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, it's polite to do if you're, no matter where you are, but yeah, to bury, bury that. It's like, it's like, geez, no one wants to, no one wants to deal with that, especially <laughs> if you're in a, a place where a lot of people are using and walking over the area. And it's like, geez, that's pretty funny though. Was that, was the slammer like some kind of like outhouse or pit or something like that? I think Not it was like literally actually. like a plastic cylinder that was supposed to be somewhat like a toilet. Um, I love that this is what we're discussing. This is entirely brought up <laughs> from a tangent from me. Another thing that was so striking to me, not on that trip, but on another one, was just being able to see the stars with no light pollution was something that I don't think I'll ever forget. And it, I'd only been able to see it that one time, that one week when I went camping really far out there. It is truly spectacular. Yeah, 100%. It's sad, but I guess I guess there's been a few times when like Los Angeles and some of these other cities has lost power for a few days or people are calling 911 because the sky something's wrong with the sky like the stars. It's like oh my goodness. Uh, it's uh, it's depressing a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I, I live in a densely packed city right now and I can notice I feel different than I do when I'm at home or when I was at school, when I was more in touch with nature, like just being able to like sit in grass. I can't do that here. My everyday walk is on 
four confined streets on the sidewalk and people wonder why you don't feel that great here. It's not natural to be surrounded by concrete all around you, 360 degrees, and you can't find a tree. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, you know, and I, uh, you know, after college, I lived in, uh, lived in a city for, for a year. And, you know, I, I was, you know, f- not from a city and I was like, oh, that'd be cool to live in a, live in a city. It, it was kind of this kind of seemed like this novel experience. And I, I think what, what got to me, it wasn't just that what you mentioned that, you know, the not, not having access to, uh, to the natural world at all. It was also just kind of the alienation that, uh, that I think is, is very harmful. And, you know, you look back at, uh, cities in America hundred years ago and they were probably, you know, they were dirtier, but there was also a huge sense of community there. You know, you had whole streets of people that all knew each other that were from the same background um, and such. And you don't really have that anymore. A lot of times uh, people who are in cities now, you, you know, they're, they have, don't have a, a ton of friends. They certainly don't live in a big building of people that all know each other. So. I completely agree. Um, my roommate and I, I think we've, we've definitely seen our neighbors, but I could not tell you their names. I knew the n- name of one of their dogs, more importantly, of course, but I don't <laughs> know the names of my neighbors whatsoever. I'm in a high rise. If I have a spare 15 minutes to go get fresh air, like I got to go all the way down, wait for the elevators, get outside, go back up. And another thing when my mom was dropping me off was she was like, nobody's smiling. I'm smiling at everyone on the street and nobody wants to smile back at me. And I was like, mom, stop smiling at strangers on the street. (laughs) But um, yeah, I think people are a little bit desensitized to other people because they're surrounded by them all the time, maybe. But it's definitely been a culture shock. And I do not see myself staying in the city for any longer than I need to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, cities, you know, it's, it's, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think, I think, uh, I have to admit by personality, I'm not a, not a city city person. There's some people that by personality just, uh, you know, love cities. They love everything that a, that a city is, um, you know, but I have some, some, you know, pragmatic, I guess, realistic reasons why I don't think cities are the best place for a lot of people to be. So. Yeah, I'm definitely anti-city. Um, everyone I follow on Twitter has been telling me to move out of cities for the past two years as well. But um, I guess well, it's and good. yeah. And here's the thing, and I I don't know what uh, Commoner, what are you, what are you work? Do you mind me asking what you're working on, a job or your profession or? Yeah, so I do um, analytics for a company, and so basically they need some data question answered. I come in and I solve that data question for them and I explain how I got there. So usually in Excel, usually in SQL, some of those other types of programs. Um, It is something that coming out of college, most of the jobs were in densely packed cities, but I'm hopeful that in a year or two, I can get a remote job or a job that's not in one of those major cities. Right. Well, yeah. And I mean, you know, this work from home, this work from home revolution, um, you know, the last couple of years has been, I think it's really a godsend to, to a lot of people because now you can, even if you, even if you need to go to a big city, um, to, for your job, like one day a week or once in a while, you can still live 
mm-hmm. several hours away and you can still still go in you know commuting sucks but uh, you can you can there's still lots of very viable professional jobs or or just jobs in general it doesn't have to be professional um, because obviously cities are centers of economic opportunity you can uh, live outside of a city an hour or so to commute and then you can kind of kind of be out there I guess in a in a away from the from the bustle and and uh and in more of a uh what i feel is a a healthy community yeah community is a tough thing to get in a city with so many people who are all there for different reasons it's just tough especially if you're starting out and you don't know anybody and you're a brand new city like that's a harrowing idea yeah 100 percent let me think here. So we talked about your crazy adventures. We talked about my experience with the slammer. So I was <laughs> reading um, in your sub stack that you've done some free cave diving. Is that true? Uh, not not free cave diving, uh, for just free diving, free like, diving. Uh, from the surface. Yeah. So I cave diving is uh, and and that's usually with scuba gear or with uh with what's called rebreathers, um, where you have like a, have the device that uh, recycles your exhalation to uh, to make air um, to to breathe. So you basically when you when you exhale, a lot of the you only use a small percentage of the oxygen, and so a rebreather is a type of device that people use for for underwater, and they've used it to explore certain underwater caves where you. You're taking all of that breath that you exhale, it sells a little oxygen in it, and then you're scrubbing it out, and then it gives it back to you so you can breathe it again. And I haven't done any of that. That's really technical stuff. That's really technical <laughs> stuff. And I have not, not, not where I've done done a little bit of scuba diving, not in caves, um, but no, I never, never done anything with rebreathers. That's a pretty, pretty advanced, pretty advanced stuff. I just recently saw this documentary about the Thailand rescue of the soccer team. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Yes, I am. Yeah. Yeah. It was incredible to watch. So for those who don't know, there was a soccer team of 12, 13 year old boys in Thailand that got stuck in a cave when it flooded suddenly. And in order to get them out, they had to dive through the cave. And since the boys would really freak out if they were going to be taken out through the cave, they had to knock them out with anesthesia. So then all of these divers were towing knocked out boys through like a seven or eight hour cave dive. And then they had to top them off with anesthesia halfway through and they all made it out. But it was the most intense thing I've seen in a long time. Yeah, I should I should watch that. Yeah, I remember when that happened. That's, That's pretty crazy. Yeah. So I guess we were just briefly discussing um, being in a city. And so one of the things that you focus on a lot is being prepared. And I have to say, I am not currently that prepared if and when shit hits the fan. So if you were going to help someone like me in a city become prepared, how would you get me started? Well, I mean, you have to, it's just like anything. You have to look at the resources you have available. You have uh no money at all or do you have a do you have a lot of money to play around with and and go from there you know people people you know shouldn't uh you know miss rent or utility bills you know because they were too busy uh buying you know cool cool stuff survival stuff you know that's a good point 
Yeah, it's not good. You just have to have to go from there. There's a there's a mantra in the preparedness community. It's you can go three minutes without air, three hours without shelter, uh, three days without water, and three weeks without food. So start there, addressing each of those needs and putting resources aside for it. A lot of times, as far as preparedness, the buying stuff, getting cool stuff gets overemphasized. It's really important to have some of those resources, but you know, your skill and your fitness, I think are, are even more important. So, uh, you know, if, if you have no money at all, you can, you can still start building your skills. You can still start building your fitness. Something I've try to avoid with with the things I've talked about is you know the list of the 10 things you need or this one tool that does it all and it's gonna save you or whatever it's like ah, there's a lot of gimmicks unfortunately and um, you know a good example of a, of a preparedness related thing that people can do you know right now with their smartphones is just looking at maps you know pull up pull up your maps app on your on your phone and start looking at the local area you know, seeing what kind of fresh water is available, seeing where, how, if you needed to evacuate yourself uh, on foot, you could, you could do it at, you know, look at the local, local streets and, and see, you know, discover, you know, the, the different features around you. I mean, these are, they're all relevant, you know, for instance, during uh, 9-11, um, everyone in Manhattan essentially had to evacuate themselves rapidly. If you're in a city, especially, you know, having intimate knowledge of the area is, is important. Like I mentioned, I go into the city to work and I always have a paper map of the city, an old fashioned paper map. And uh, I have my friends' houses marked on it, you know, friends I've talked to and said, hey, is it, is it okay if I come here if something happens? I have that map. That way, if I have a you know, I've been in a few natural disasters and the, uh, the cell phone tower system gets overloaded really quickly mm. because everyone's, everyone's on their phones. And so the ability to have that, have that kind of a paper map uh, is important. So, I mean, that's, that's a, that's a prep that everyone can do right now. And it's, it's costs, you know, uh, $10 at the most, uh, $0 if you use your phone. That's a very good idea to get a paper map and to discuss not necessarily escape routes, but just a network of people that you guys can all meet up if the worst happens. In terms of stocking up, the first so I was reading in your Substack and you were saying how you need to be prepared for what if the electricity goes out and you need to be prepared for the coldest winter night, basically. Like right. There's, I guess there's no other way around that one. So that makes me very concerned. And then I got the freaking meat freezer because everyone told me to, and it's stocked up. And every time I bring someone into my room to show them around or something, they're like, what is that? And I'm like, it's my meat freezer. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Crazy people on the internet. Oh, yeah. I know. <laughs> and they're like, what's it for? I'm like, Armageddon, I'm ready. And so, um, but if the electricity goes out, I'm going to have a lot of bacon all at once, but <laughs> there's nothing right. I can really do there. Right. As an, in an apartment, like I can't get a generator. I can't, you know, solar panels aren't going to help me out. Like I really am relying on electricity. Okay. Well, yeah. It's so, as far as just so everyone knows, as far as if you, if you are in your situation and the power goes out, I mean, if it's, if the power is going out for two weeks at a time, that's going to be a hard thing. If the power is going out for uh 
for three days, um, your freezer should be fine. Don't open it. Right. And uh, if you want to be extra safe, you can uh, you can uh, throw some some ice in there in the in the blank in the blank spaces and the empty spaces of the freezer. That'll take out some of the dead space. I actually had a pretty long power outage last year, and uh, my freezers weren't hooked up to a, to the generator or anything, and there was no issues at all. I mean, I it was amazing over the course of two days how little the temperature in there changed. So it's going to, it's going to stay cold for quite a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like, I feel like there's another part to your, to your question. Well, just like as, heating, there's nothing you can really do or sure. Yeah. You know, having, having appropriate clothes for your climate around mm-hmm. and, and a lot of what Americans especially wear nowadays, they wear because you can duck into the heating or the air conditioning anytime you want. So really, you know, uh, what we wear nowadays is is not very practical for the weather we live in um, as often as not. You're just, just uh, people are basically dressing for the inside, not for the outdoors. So, um, you know, having appropriate clothing to really be out in whatever climate you're in. So if you're living in a winter climate, you want to have uh, appropriate heavy, heavy gear, you know, um, there's a lot of, a lot of wool clothes, like wool pants and stuff that are pretty, pretty inexpensive. And, you know, there's also, also, if you have the money to spend, there's plenty of higher end gear. There's all of that, that uh, high end outdoor gear that can, can be better in the sense that it's a lot lighter um, that you can, can buy. And, you know, having, having an appropriate coat, having wool socks, if you're in winter, winter climates if you're in a in a hot climate like say you live in arizona uh having a a full brimmed hat you know it'll keep the sun mm-hmm. off having some some cot, cotton clothes long long cotton pants long cotton uh sleeved shirts um things like that it's, mm-hmm. it's uh i've i've you know i've personally been outside and and some really slept outside in some really cold weather um you know down to about negative 30 degrees fahrenheit and um, it's it's really it's really a pretty simple equation. It's just a matter of having enough insulation around you. You know, it's like uh, it's like a polar bear never feels cold a day in its life because it's got such a nice winter coat. You know, if you have enough blankets, you won't you won't get cold. So, so stock up on wool socks, wool garments, and lots of extra blankets in case China <laughs> hits our electric grid. <laughs> yeah, it can't hurt. It can't hurt <laughs> for sure. I mean, and there's. There's great sleeping bags too. Uh, there's a, um, I believe I saw, I mean, these sleeping bags I saw that went down to negative 40 degrees. I don't have one. I have other sleeping bags, but they, it was a pretty inexpensive sleeping bag. It was kind of the, it was kind of the square style, not the mummy bag. The mummy bags are the ones that really conform to your body. And this was kind of more like the, uh, it was a rectangular style and it was, it was, uh, it was, I think just a couple hundred dollars and this was a negative 40 bag, Wow! you know, so you don't, you don't have to be necessarily buying, you know, uh, things that cost thousands of dollars. Um, and you know, I mean, worst case scenario, even if you are really short on funds, I mean, you know, um, there's very inexpensive, uh, uh, blankets and comforters for sale at Walmart. They'll be heavy, but they'll, uh, they'll keep you warm. These are all very tangible things that I can do. Yeah. And um... I, I, and that's part of my philosophy. It's like, I think, unfortunately, a lot of preparedness and survival topics, they're either, they're, they're either um, 
just about kind of consuming more, like, you know, what kind of cool stuff can I buy? Mm -hmm. um, which if, if you want to buy cool stuff, I'm the last person to tell you not to do it because I love <laughs> to buy cool stuff. But but it's become a, you know, buy cool stuff or it's become like live out your favorite movie. Um, you know, what's what's your favorite movie? Let's prepare to be the main character in our in your favorite movie, whether that's uh, Rambo or John Wick or mm -hmm. uh, the edge or, or jeremiah johnson or, or or whatever it's either that or it's it's just not it's not realistic or it's or it's kind of intimidates people it's there's a lot of a lot of preparedness and survival uh kind of oriented people that sort of intimidate normal people like oh i'm i'm the ultimate uh i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm ready for anything and, and you're not and it, it scares people away because they're like well i can't I can't do that or I, I can't afford that. And then um, doing, doing something um, to prepare for a lot of, a lot of things is, is can, can go so much farther than doing nothing at all. That's kind of part of my, my message. Yeah. I think what you were saying about how it's more of like preparing yourself in terms of being fit, being mentally prepared, those are more important steps than buying the coolest Swiss army knife. Um, that makes a whole lot of sense. Have you been in a situation where these preparation skills really, really need to come in handy? Yeah, I mean, I was definitely, definitely pulling a lot of stuff out uh, just uh, last year for major weather event. You know, and I think I think there's also like what's what's about survival and what's about comfort and mm -hmm. and such. And I mean, I think I think the situation we were in it wasn't uh, my family was in danger of death or anything necessarily but uh but i definitely our property was in in danger like if i hadn't had the things i'd had i our, our property probably would have been damaged a lot and also we were very comfortable because of the things uh the preparations we made it was very very comfortable you know so so while while other people were stressing out and running around like chickens with their heads cut off we were just living life and and cooking and doing doing whatever playing games and and chilling out so um, that was really, really nice. And I mean, I think there's a huge aspect to preparedness. Like you're not, you know, people are, it's pretty hard to kill people. It's, it's harder than you think, but uh, you know, I don't want to just survive. I want to thrive, you know, and having, having your ducks in a row preparedness wise allows you to, to uh, just, just kind of lay back when, when other people are, uh, other people are really stressed out and worried. So I think, I think there's uh, something to that too. Yeah, and definitely makes me want to prioritize this even more than I already have, despite the crazy looks I've gotten for things like the meat freezer. So given your very useful skill set that seems to be coming more useful as each day passes, do you think there will be significant food shortages in the U.S. soon? I think it's, I think it's really, really hard to say. It's hard to make exact predictions, but I mean, in a sense... Um, we already have a, a food shortage in the sense uh, there's a, a lot of food isn't very healthy. Mm. I think that as as the food supply constricts, that food is going to become less healthy and of a lower quality. And I think I think we've seen that um, to some extent since the last couple of years, where there's been some shortages, but there's also been uh, also been a a dip in the quality of everything. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, you get into this, you know, I will not eat the bugs sort of <laughs> scenario, you know, it's like, 
It's like, uh, are we going to have a total shortage of food? Yeah, it's there's uh, all you can eat bug bur- burgers. You know, let's let's go to the the bug buffet. <laughs> so, so yeah, as far as people starving to death on the streets with their ribs sticking out, I don't know if that's in the cards very soon. But you can see, I mean, I think the results of the really poor quality food. Uh, there's a German word from World War One called Erzatz. I think I'm pronouncing that right, but basically it's the substitution of, of food. So, you know, you shikari for coffee, putting sawdust and flour to make it, the mm. bread go longer. Um, I think we're seeing a lot of that, you know, where it's like, well, there's not, it's not necessarily a, a sh- total shortage. There's still, there's still food, but it's declining quality. And I, I expect to see more of that. And then I think another thing is uh, the grocery stores are, where I'm at are fairly full, mm-hmm. but uh, the food is also increasingly unaffordable. Yeah. Uh, and and so there's a, so many different uh, inputs into food now, and there's there's so many different economic factors that go into it. I mean, I think a, a, a food crisis is is very conceivable thing. I don't know if we'll have you know the Ethiopia 90s and the Ethiopia style starvation event. And, and, you know, the other thing, too, is um, people are very used to a certain standard of living. And so if, if that standard of living drops, a lot of times they get very angry, you know. So it's not just always about, um, you know, starvation. You know, it's like if, if, if uh, things keep going the way they are, I think you'll see a lot more discontent in society at large. And that's going to, uh, going to create a lot of shockwaves. And I think we've already seen some of that the last well for for decades now but uh, it seems to be bubbling over in the last couple years yeah so i did a bit of research into like the global food crisis a couple couple months ago at this point for a certain video and i agree with you i think that there's not going to be a complete empty shelves in the the grocery store. But I think it's going to become more expensive than it is now for things that people eat all the time, like meat, milk, eggs, cheese. Those kinds of things are just going to become more expensive. But my concern is the civil unrest that you're describing, especially for people isolated in cities, for instance, the civil like disorder and dysfunction that could arise from some people not being able to eat in the same way that they normally have will be like, dominoes falling in some of these places that are already on the brink so that's my biggest concern i think heading into this winter yeah exactly yeah people people uh, are really i mean i don't think i think it's uh it's trite to say i mean people are people are very attached to what they eat and yeah and i think i mean i think inflation is a whole other topic i'm not really qualified to speak on it too extensively other than i can speak just as a as a, as a person trying to make a living. Yeah. It's, it's very go Any trip to the grocery store now is, is very expensive and it hurts, hurts the, hurts the wallet. And, and I'm, I'm pretty lucky. I'm very fortunate in a, in a lot of ways and I'm able to afford it. But I mean, uh, I wonder about, about other, other people who, who aren't, you know, how are they going to, how are they going to keep buying, um, you know, like, as you said, you know, milk and eggs. Yeah. It's something that we just keep reading about from everyone on Twitter. A lot of my friends have made fun of me. Like I thought Armageddon was going to happen last year, commoner. Like I've been preparing for so long at this point, but I really think that it's just all the 
the arrows are pointing towards a not so great winner because of all these confounding factors and it's on us to be prepared yeah and i mean i think the way things are going i don't see things getting better so it's not that's why i don't put exact time predictions on things you know because then you're kind of opening yourself up to you know kind of that ridicule um but i mean i don't i don't see things getting better and they're they're we're clearly in a certain trajectory um, as far as you know, inflation, as far as food quality, you know, crime and security, and such, we're in we're in a certain trajectory with that. And so, it, it's you know, with preparedness in general, you know, people need to look at it the same way they look at uh, fitness or uh, or diet, rather than saying, "Oh, I'm going to uh, I'm going to be I'm going to work out for six months and then I'm I'm done." No, you got to make a life lifelong com- commitment. Mm to fitness or uh, with diet. It's like, well, I'm, you know, going to go on this uh, cool diet, you know, it's, it's a fad diet or, or uh, I'm going to be a vegan for six months and lose weight. And then, then I'm going to go right back to my old ways afterwards. Well, it doesn't work like that. No, you have to have a, you know, a sustainable workout program, a sustainable diet and, you know, preparedness is the same way. It's just something you make a commitment to. And it's, uh, it's like an insurance policy. Mm-hmm. You, you pay your insurance uh, for your car or your house every, every month. Um, you know, it's just another, another insurance policy you're doing. And, and uh, it's just, just like your, just like your car insurance, you're not really hoping that it pays off because you don't want to get an accident here. Uh, but you're still doing it anyways, because you can't, you can't, you can't be sure. You have very much convinced me that I need to prioritize this much more than I currently have, <laughs> but it all comes well, back to a personal responsibility. It appears. So I think with that, I'll let you sign off. Thank you so sure. much for talking with me today. I really appreciate your time. And to anyone listening, hey. make sure you go follow Bowtide Survivalist on Twitter. Thank you, commenter. I'll see you later.